As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to The Audible. I am Bruce Feldman, joined by a special guest today because Stu is off to Hawaii on vacation. So we're going into the Fox family and getting out a football legend, our own Chris Spielman. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here, Bruce. Uh, so everybody remembers, remembers you, obviously, either as a, as a great player at Ohio State, two-time All-American, Long, distinguished career in the NFL, but you had a, a really good uh, run as as well as a college football analyst. And then last year you did the NFL, uh, and now you're coming. I, I hope we're not speaking out of school, but you're coming back to the college game this season, and that's a good thing for college fans. Uh, doing the NFL as a broadcaster and as an analyst, how different is doing college from from NFL? there's only 53 guys and we already know most if you're a football fan you know NFL rosters because of the, the amount of information out there if we follow the draft if we follow college football and the roster isn't constantly changing over like it is in, in college football so that's that's a little easier uh, the games are shorter and to be quite honest with you the games are cleaner there's just you know they're better players now I'm not diminishing college football because college football has its own advantages and pluses but uh, the difference for me in the NFL was that you know just the, the quality of play and the the quarterback play is just phenomenal I think that's what stood out the most would you critique or comment on guys differently because you know they're professionals as opposed to you know 20 18 19 year olds yeah a, a little bit yeah uh, you know I'm I'm pretty I guess honest in my evaluations, and boy, I, I just, you know, the one thing I really can't handle at any level is a lack of effort or a lack of hustle. So when I, I've done games in the past in college football, I think I, I guess when I'm most critical, if I see a guy uh, pulling up or protecting himself or, or not hustling to the ball or not playing for his team, the NFL, I think it's a, it's a can be a little more critical and maybe a little bit more personal, not uh, attacking the guy personally, but attacking, you know, that this is unacceptable for uh, a corner uh, that quit on a, uh, a long pass because 
I try to keep my the rule like my dad gave me when he would critique me and my dad was an old coach. He says, he asked me one time, do you want me to lie to you or do you want me to tell you the truth as I see it? And I said, oh, I always want the truth as you see it because you know more about it than I do. And so I tried to carry that on not only as a broadcaster, but when I was a player. Uh, speaking of your dad, you had, a, you had a great story. I remember I've heard this before. How old were you when you went on this spring break trip with your family to Texas? So that would have been, um, I would have been seven or eight. It was the 19, let's see, 74 or 73. My dad was a coach at Canton Timken High School in Canton, Ohio, and he was going to put in a new offense. And so he woke us up in the middle of the night one night and said, hey, guys, and this is my brother and I, and he says, we're going to drive to the University of Houston. We're going to go to Houston spring football practice, and we're going to put in a new offense called the Houston Veerman, and we're going to meet with Coach Bill Yeoman. So we packed up the car and drove. I don't know how long. It was all day, and most of the night it seemed like to get to the University of Houston, but we spent time at the University of Houston, and, and I loved it, though, I mean, because it was football, and the passion that I had for the game at, at an early age, Bruce, and you and I have talked many times, uh, was was not common, and maybe a little bit unnatural, <laughs> but I loved it, though, it was great. So when you're seven or eight, you're in, I assume, like one of these rooms with like the, the metal folding chairs, and, and you're... How old is Rick? What's the age difference between you two? Rick's two and a half years older, so he, he he's ten, maybe. So Rick would be nine or ten, ten years old. And uh, yeah, it was great though. But and you know what I loved? I my dad taught me how to thread a was it sixteen millimeter projectors? Mm-hmm. Remember when we used to watch film back? In Slicing school, everything. Yeah. Maybe you had VCR. We didn't have them until the very end of my high school uh, year, but. When I was that little, back in the 70s, uh, we used to go on road trips with my dad to exchange film with other coaches and opponents, meet them halfway. You know, because he's playing a team from Youngstown at Akron. You know, so it was, it was, uh, it, it was uh, for me, an experience and something that I certainly embraced. So at seven, how much do you, like, knowing what you know now, how how much of the intricacies of the Veer offense could you grasp as a seven-year-old boy in that setting? Um, a lot of it because I knew how important the quarterback was. And the, the one thing that I would argue with my dad about was, okay, so you're, you're, you're in the Veer, depending on the defense, you're, you're much like the read options we see today. You're leaving a player unblocked. And the quarterback is going to read what that player does, determine whether to hand the ball off or to uh, continue out with the option play where he keeps it and runs it or he has a bailout with a pitch. And I just kept arguing, why, why are we leaving that guy unblocked? And I couldn't grasp the theory of, of, you know, we're going up to another level to block another guy and hoping that guy makes a mistake and making sure that that quarterback is reading the right guy and making the right decision off the unblocked player. So... I think, you know, by the time I was like 10, I probably understood it. But we're probably on to the new offense by then. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> At that point, when you're that young and you're, you're you know, kind of in love and intrigued by the X and O's, do you think, you know, whether I'm a great player or not, I'm going to go do what my dad does and I'm going to coach because I just love how the parts kind of are supposed to come together? I, I always thought I would coach. I mean, it was that was, you know, I, I knew that I had a shot to play 
professional football. Like a lot of kids in high school that are standout high school players, everybody has a dream of, of playing in the NFL. Then when I got to college and started having success early on, I knew that I had a shot as a player. Uh, I didn't know if I was ever going to make it or not, but I knew I'd get an opportunity. And But the one thing I never questioned was that I was going to go into coaching and I wanted to get a, uh, which I did, get a degree in education and, and be a teacher and coach just like my dad. But, you know, you, you, life throws us different challenges and, and different opportunities. And, and certainly, uh, like all of us, I've had my fair share of challenges and had to make life decisions based off of the results of those challenges. Sure. Um, jumping into current football, I know that you, you were at uh, – the Buckeyes spring game. So when you go to a spring game and you see, you know, it was no secret last year, they struggled hitting uh, plays downfield, especially in, obviously in the past game. Uh, and then they did in the spring game. It wasn't JT Barrett. I think, you know, Dwayne Haskins, who was, came in as a big recruit, looked good. Uh, are you looking at it going, man, they got the pass game going, Kevin Wilson and Ryan Day have, you know, cranked this thing up? Or do you say, oh, this rebuilt secondary is going to need a lot of work? Like what perspective, like how do you, how do you analyze yeah. it? as the head coach has. Well, he's excited to see uh, the ball being completed over 10 yards, which seemed to be a struggle at times for Ohio State last year, but saying, wait a second, I don't want to see bombs away like this all day. And so uh, I, I think the secondary is going to be fine. Bruce, they recruit so well in the secondary. I mean, just we had, uh, we had a great show at the draft this year, and as we're doing that show, Ohio State has three guys coming off the with urban that year he was out at espn uh i'm curious what do you learn about a guy especially a coach you know as opposed to maybe your play-by-play guy of spending all that time around him in that setting well i think the year off and uh if you ever and i know you get a chance to talk to him or sit down with him i think the year off made him a better coach and I think that it would be great if coaches were allowed to take a year reprieve and work in the television booth or do what we do for a living. Because I think what happens is during that time off, uh, Urban was able to recharge his batteries a little bit. Um, he's able to visit other coaches and, and exchange ideas and is able to view it from our perspective. And Urban Meyer was a different guy 
is at Ohio State. And even, even in terms of treat, how he treated us, the TV guys, and, and Bruce, you do games, so you yeah. know this, right? There's some schools we go to where, yeah, whatever you guys need, come on in. Well, you know, they, they trust that we're not there to hurt them. We're only there to uh, promote their product and promote the game that we all love in college football. And there's some guys that are so uh, guarded when we walk on campus that it's a waste of our time for even being there. I think Urban was probably on the ladder when he was at Florida, but he certainly, after experiencing a year in the booth and what we actually do, understands that our position as people covering the game only there to promote the game and promote their schools. Yeah, I don't know if you went to, I want to say you guys, were, it was a Pittsburgh game. I forgot who it was. It was in the afternoon. I remember watching the game. And then at night, I had been with, yeah. and I had been with West Virginia the whole week because they had LSU coming in there for a Saturday night game. And yeah. I know Urban came there. And I remember, like, my relationship with uh, Florida and Utah was it was okay. It wasn't great. Um, and right. then, you know, he I worked with him on a signing day show at, at ESPN, and then I left. Uh, basically I'd been at CBS for about a month and I just remember I was walking across the field after halftime and I was going to see David Pollack or or Jesse Palmer, one of the two, I forgot which, somebody I, you know, had worked with or whatever. And he kind of, Urban kind of stopped me and was like, gave me like a big hug. And I was like, you know, it kind of caught me off guard because it was like, I had a very warm interaction with him. And it was, it was really kind of caught me off guard just because I was like, this was not the same as what I, you know, what I remembered him being like. And we talked about some stuff, you know, that had, had gone on in my situation or whatever. And, and I'm not saying like, you know, right now my relationship with him is much better than, than it used to be. But I think that everybody I've talked to said he is just so much different than how he, how his perspective was on things, I guess, back, you know, when he was still building at Florida and maybe, maybe that part of it is, you know, who he's He's more comfortable in his own skin as a man and as a coach. Yeah. Well, I think a legitimate health scare really gives you perspective. And actually, Urban is now a grandfather. Mm-hmm. And his daughter just had a, a child. And his wife is a wonderful lady who's very supportive and very strong in her own right. And so when Urban made that decision to uh, come back to coaching and uh, I know you know this, but a lot of your listeners not might not know this. He actually signed a contract with his family that he was going to, to hold up to a certain promise that he made them. And I think that has helped him keep perspective. Uh, and I, I said, Urban, and I remember when we were talking about him getting back into coaching, and he asked me what I thought, and I think he was just gathering information from a lot of people that, you know, he dealt with on a daily basis. And I think I told him, I said, look, what we have to remember is competitors because you're, you're, you're an Uber competitor. I'm an Uber competitor. He, he's an Uber competitor. And sometimes as competitors, we forget that there's blessings in, in being content. And sometimes that's hard for us to grasp. And the big difference between being content and being complacent. And I think he realized that, hey, this is pretty good. <laughs> and if I lose a game, uh, I'm not going to go off the deep end. And if I do go off the deep end, I do have the tools and people around me to help me get back on track to live that life of understanding that I can still be content. And if we lose a game, it's not the end of the world. Hmm. 
Um, in, in your perspective of doing this, this job, uh, how come, like, how have you channeled that competitiveness that you had into what you do now? Well, you want to be perfect and we're not going to be so, but you always strive to be. So that's the competitive part for me, right? We, we never want to make a mistake, uh, or you want to make as few as possible. We always want to be correct in our grammar, which, you know, we all make mistakes in that if you're on live TV, or we never want to stumble over words, and we all do that. So from my own personal performance, that's what I try to do, and I try to offer the viewer uh, a very simple rule, why something happened and not what, and I think I do that on a consistent basis, which uh, I, I believe allowed me to have a, a career in this world for for a, a, a consistent career for uh, a decent amount of time. Um, from a team point of view, it is very, very important to me that our team is working for each other, that the, I am working to make the play-by-play guy his best. I want to be on the same page with the producer and the director. I want the cameraman to understand what I see and what I'm looking for. Uh, I know a lot of some guys do this. I started doing this, I think, my third year uh, in this business where I would, and I had no idea what was going on. I would ask the producer, I said, why don't we get all the camera guys here? I'll get here before, when you guys get here on a Saturday morning set up, and I will go over what I anticipate and what I'm looking for and what's going to happen. And so if that situation comes, that camera guy will have the opportunity for the best shot available. And uh, it's important to me. It's important to me that the team does a great job. I don't care about the individual because if the play-by-play guy is good, if the sideline guy is good, if I'm good, if the camera guys are good, the producer and director are all on the same page and they're following what I'm saying and I'm following what they're showing, you're going to have a great show and you're going to put a good product out. And the number one rule is it's the same in football uh, when I was a player. Not there to serve yourself. You're there to serve, serve the fans to give them the best possible product that we can give them. That's our obligation, and which all of us should take it very seriously. Mm. So last week we were all in Arizona, and I had this conversation with a head coach who used to be a great defensive coordinator, and we were talking about, you know, started out talking about me doing TV, and then it was about broadcasts. And, uh, you know, one of the things, and I think I kind of bounced this off you once upon a time, was – the analyst sits on the, upstairs and they comment on something and I'm like, well, do they really know like who was at fault on the, on a given play because of what they are? It's not like they're they're They know what the, what the coverage was or was supposed to be. And I wonder if you get some false cues sometimes because if it's college kids are more likely to have a missed assignment and maybe they're out of place and maybe that gives you a false read. And, and he said, they don't, those guys don't know. He goes, Spielman knows those guys don't know. So, <laughs> So well, that's good because I was going to say, let's watch a film and you tell me where I'm wrong. Yeah. So well, look. So so everything is going on so fast, and I got to be honest. Like me having you know the IFB in my ear, so I'm hearing you know what a lot of what the producers say. I'm not hearing everything, but um, to know what's going on, to have somebody in your ear, to and it's fast, especially now in tempo. So how much stuff can you detect or deduce? 
before the ball is snapped in that time while you're trying to do everything that's going on? Well, that starts on um, Tuesdays. Usually, I take Sunday and Monday off when I come home. I mean, I'll go to college. I'll watch, I'll watch the NFL on Sunday. And Monday, I'll devote to my wife as far as let's go have lunch, let's go work out or hang out. But once Tuesday starts, so then I start looking at film. And so you, for me, I look at the film, and so I start looking at philosophically what teams want to accomplish, what they're trying to do. Uh, then on Wednesday, I look at, okay, individual players. If I were a coach, who would I go after, and why would I go after them? Or what area do I detect a weakness? Uh, then that's on Wednesdays. On Thursdays uh, is travel day, and I familiarize myself with rosters, uh, names, numbers, any backstories that I can add to that the play-by-play guy might share or that I might throw in there. Friday, what I'd like to do, if uh, everybody is a willing participant, is I'll sit with the play-by-play guy, the sideline guy, the producer and director, and watch coaches film. And then I'll show them exactly what I'm looking for and why this works, why it doesn't work, or what the quarterback is reading on a particular coverage. For example, uh, if a quarterback, if we have a, let's say we have two outside routes, okay, and we're in cover two, well, the quarterback's going to read the corner. And the rule is for a quarterback. So cover two, for those that don't know, You'll have the corner that's kind of playing off maybe uh, about six or seven yards, and you'll have a safety over the top for anything deep. So if you flood that area with two wide receivers, one short, one deep, the quarterback's read is to read the corner, throw the corner. So if the corner's up, he's throwing the ball deep on the sideline or on a a flag cut, uh, to use that term. And if the quarterback's or if the corner, the defensive back, is back and, and kind of going underneath that deeper route, you throw the ball in front of him short. And so if a quarterback makes a bad read off of that look, I can simply say it's a bad read because he didn't read the corner, didn't throw the corner. The corner was back. He should have thrown it short. He saw the corner back, yet he's tried to force it in there. That's a bad read, a bad throw. I know that's really technical, but I can promise you if it happened on the game and I can – explain it to you so you can see it, it would make a lot of sense. Football isn't very difficult, Bruce. It really isn't. You look for matchups and understand once you have a concept of where weakness of a defense is, then you understand how to attack that defense. You can see where the breakdown is. And the other the other easy part of it is for me is that especially in college football, there's a lot of one gap defense. And whenever there's two guys, if you watch a defense from the end zone, if you see two guys in one gap, then that's a, that's, that's a mental error on the defense. And they're not gap sound, or they don't have gap integrity, which we hear a lot on broadcast. And a good running back and a good offensive line will exploit that. So that's my whole week and what I look for and, and what I do. One of the examples I remember that came to mind is you had this a West Virginia game. I want to say it's probably five years ago. The left tackle was a young left tackle, 
And I don't know what point in the broadcast you were basically saying, this is going to be a run, this is going to be a pass, and every time you're right. Yeah. Uh, and then I think later on, I think you could also tell, uh, you know, j- just by where his, you know, what, what he was, whether he was looking inside or looking outside. Is that something yeah. you had picked up in the course of the game or something you had seen during the week? Uh, during the week. And then I, 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 but I won't bring that up in the game unless I validate that at least three times before I comment on it because I want to be sure because I don't want to look like an idiot. Mm-hmm. And I, and we'll have, and I'll tell the producer and director leading up to that, that keep an eye on this guy. He's giving away run pass. You know, it's, it, when he's, when it's a pass and say he's playing uh, left offensive tackle, his left foot is back and the shoulders are turned at a 45 and his head is looking outside. That's 100%. It's my job to point that out to the viewer. And I remember that game, and people from West Virginia were texting in or calling in and telling me to keep my mouth shut. You're giving Texas Tech the play. If I got news for you guys, if I can pick that up, then the coaching staff at West Virginia or the coaching staff at Texas Tech could probably pick that up. And so it's not my job to correct your guys or coach your players. I'm doing you a favor by pointing out a weakness that you can get fixed so nobody else exploits that. That's the way I always look at that. I'm helping them. Yeah, by the way, that player I looked up, he's plays for the Tennessee Titans. He's been in the NFL for a while. So now he's a guard. <laughs> he's not a left tackle. But, yeah, um, there you go. <laughs> and I'm sure he's really good. Yeah. <laughs> How often – so when you go into a game, everybody has their boards, the play-by-play guy and everything, the announcers. Do you have, like, a list of, like – a half dozen things, maybe physical tells or something that tips that you've noticed that you're like, okay, I'm going to keep an eye on this as well. Yeah. Um, I do. It's, it's a little easier in college in the NFL because in the NFL, you got to be really careful because guys are smart. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they'll, and you know, they're, the opponents are watching film and I know that you have a tip, uh, tip or, Coaches usually do a self-scout and say, look, this is a tendency of ours, and this is, this is something that we need to correct. Or if an offensive lineman is giving away something, we need to correct that. And uh, so to me, you know, I, I have a few of them, but in the NFL you've got to be careful. But in college, because everybody goes so fast, mm-hmm. and everybody's trying to line up, you know, they, they get in position to make a block, and they're not really – and to hide anything. So it's just fun for me to point that out to the viewer so they can see. And I think it makes them feel more engaged uh, in the game my, myself. I, just, I think that a lot of it, too, is... And here's another thing that people can look for if they're watching the game. Like, where receivers, what their splits are, by splits is where they line up. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're lined up sideline, you're not running anything, but you're running a slant or takeoff. Or something back inside, right? Yeah, there's no room otherwise. There's no room yeah. yeah. So, you know, just little stuff like that. That's why, I mean, sometimes football is easy just by if we see where people are lined up and what they can do. You know, so. I mean, there's. I, I love it, though. I love seeing it, and I love that. And to be quite honest with you, um, I think, you know, I'm not the most physically intimidating guy to ever play middle linebacker in the NFL. But the one thing I would never change uh, or give up is a, a physical ability that I had as a player. 
player would be my vision. My vision allowed me to play faster than I was. When you watched when you've watched college football in the last five, six you know years or so, and I know that you were in the with the NFL last year, was there a guy you would say, okay, this guy most reminds me of how I played? Two brothers, yeah, yeah. For the Vikings, and and I thought to myself, like I'll talk to my brother. For those that don't know, is the GM of the Vikings, and you know he he'll ask me what do I think of a guy, and I'll write him a report of what I think he does well, what I think he doesn't do well. If I, you know, I did UCLA like three times that year, and he asked me what I thought of uh, any linebackers that stood out, and I said, yeah, there's a lot of good ones, Rick, but you know this. All he's doing is making plays, or he's darn close to the ball every single time. And you're you're a California guy. You watched. Mm-hmm. Him. I don't know if you remember how good he was, Bruce, in college, but I thought he was tremendous. Yeah, and he's. I mean, I guess he's probably a little li- lighter than you, but he was. You know, again, six feet, probably two thirty-five, two forty. But he made he made plays, and where he made plays. Yeah, he won the Buckus. He, he won the Buckus sure, Award. Yeah, so. Yeah, I see he made uh, all rookie team for the Vikings, and it seems like he's piled up a lot of tackles in that time. Um, yeah, he's a good player. Uh, this is, uh, I noticed we are both Libras. I just realized this. Uh, and I'm not big on astrology, but I do buy that one thing. It's like having a rigorous sense of right and wrong. That's kind of where I am with that. Do you see that yeah. into, into how you kind of live your life? Has it just kind of manifested itself? This is a good segue, I think. So one of my favorite stories I've heard you tell off camera, uh, a few years, a while back, we're in, in Connecticut, and I want to say Chris Carter was around, but you were telling the story of you guys are both at Ohio State. I want to say it's like summer seven on seven, and Chris Carter was very competitive. Obviously, he turned out to be a great player, and you were very competitive, and you kind of got sideways with your head coach, Earl Bruce, right, about it.
I've watched. And I'm not, it's not taken away from any other other great receivers, Michael Irvin or Jerry Rice or any other Hall of Famers that I played with. I just I never saw Chris drop the ball ever, and he scored in the red zone when he had his opportunity. But that being said, uh, during practice, Chris would catch the ball, and he knew that coach didn't want any of our defensive backs or anybody to to hit him because he was that important to our team, which is is you know I get it. But Chris would get it, and so he would he would start turning and trying to run over defensive backs, knowing that he wasn't going to get his back. <laughs> that day? Kuchar, he's the X and O Labs guy. We had him on this podcast probably a couple months ago. So he tells me, and like a lot of us, and I, I think I would fall in this category, you know, especially my age, I'm a little younger than you, is like, you were the guy, right? So there's a lot of people who grew up as huge, like idolized you, and, and Kuchar fit in this category and still does, I think. And he said, so I'm going to interview him about 
uh, rugby tackling. And so I, he said, I call him up and I said, what are you doing? He goes, well, I've watched, uh, I watched five, five games of rugby. He goes, really? Why'd you do that? And he goes, and you said, cause I, cause I know you, I, I want to learn about rugging tackling. I want to know everything I can to learn about it. So it was like, man, he, t- he not only was like, he took this very seriously. Uh, people talk about rugby tackling a lot. Do you think it is overblown how much it's been embraced or is that something that like when you studied it and and kind of broke it down, what are the things you learned about this kind of shift that maybe football is having? Yeah. I I think there's, there's like, uh, I believe there's merit to to some of it, not all of it. Uh, What I mean, uh, the good things about rugby tackling is that guys are forced I guess it's something where I don't know if it's if it's psychological where people think you know where they're you're the ball carrier one against eleven technically in your head when you're making it. Whereas I, I don't know why that would. I mean, it, it seems like it's counterintuitive at that point, right? Well, football in itself is counterintuitive. <laughs> I mean, yeah. What's natural about running into another human being as hard as you can? Just nothing. I mean, it's just it's it's a learned behavior, and I've learned it. With kids, even when I coach my son's little league teams and stuff, get, people either love it or hate it, and kids do. And you find out early on, 
because it's a very difficult game to play because training and practicing for football is is the most difficult thing of all the team sports and for me in my opinion because of the nature of the practices and, and now they're, they're a little bit lighter now but and you only play what 14 games 15 in college if you win a national championship and uh, obviously more in the NFL but there's no AAU season, right? There's no travel soccer. There's no uh, volleyball tournaments that people travel around the world for for their daughters. Uh, I have a daughter playing lacrosse. There's no travel lacrosse. You get one shot <laughs> in football, and it's once a week, and it's hard to do that because there's only one time to get once a week where you get a payoff for three months in high school. Where other sports, okay, well, my high school senior basketball team did, or my high school Football, I think, is great at, at revealing character. I think the only sport that may reveal it even more, especially in the youth level, is wrestling. I mean, that's There's a, nowhere to hide. That's you it. You can hide on a football field, or you can try to hide. You'll get exposed eventually. Wrestling, there's nowhere to hide. In fact, I put my son in wrestling uh, when he was six uh, against eight, nine-year-olds to see how he responded to getting his butt kicked. Would he turtle and fold over, or would he at least, I know he's going to get his butt kicked, but would he fight back? And maybe maybe that's illegal, or some sick science experiment that I was doing with him, but I had to know, where, where is he going to stand? Is he going to fight back, or is he going to turtle? And to his credit, he fought back. What would you have done as a dad, and as, a, as the person you are, if he didn't, you know, if he did turtle?
college, dropped him off without ever seeing it or visiting the school, and enrolled him, and off he went. So I, I'm curious, and obviously I have young kids, not not older kids, um, and I'm really learning the parenting side. But when he says something yeah. like that to you, you know, how much of an eye opener is it to you? Just about okay, I'm learning about myself as a parent, not just as a person as well through this process. Well, you know, I, I think I've always battled like, why don't they think like me? as an athlete, then my late wife, Stephanie, was quick to point out, and my current wife now are quick to point out, because they're not you. And my older kids um, had the, the pleasure of being around their mom, Steph, when she was healthy and vibrant and active in their lives, and she uh, gave me balance. She introduced me to theater. She introduced me to different musics where it wasn't just football all the time. So when we had kids, we introduced them to everything. And they're, they're much more grounded uh, than I was at their age. So when he told me that, I didn't take offense to it. Mm. Actually, I was, I was proud. And I thought, well, I did a good job after Steph went home to keep him invested in other things besides football. With your with your youngest, knowing her potential or her athleticism as it is, do you how do, how much do, where do you draw the line on encouraging her to try to you know, maybe be more invested or where you just say, "Hey, you know, everybody's created different. She's not wired to be that. Yeah. I'm just going to let her be how yeah. she wants to be." fascinating to hear people talk about parenting and, and yeah it's crazy sometimes I mean the, the conversations now I have with coaches a lot of times 
you know, especially in the off season, it was much different than it was before I had kids, especially before I had a son, you know. And yeah. um, I always think it's interesting when you hear a coach who's like, it's it's not a surprise to see, oh, this coach is, you know, this quarterback or whatever, his dad was a coach or, or whatnot, because it's kind of, you feel like it's in the blood or it's almost like how they were raised. But when you run into a coach who's like, yeah, my kid doesn't like sports, he's not into it, we're okay with that, you know, but it's like, you get the sense that it took took them a little while as parents to kind of, or at least as a dad, to come to terms with that. Because that's it's not all that they know, but it's basically your whole world is that. I agree. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's just, it's a struggle for me still. Uh, you know, because of, of my experiences in life, you know, the one thing that trumps everything for me is that, are my kids healthy? Are they healthy? You know, I just want everybody healthy and give them the opportunity. So that's kind of put a new perspective mm-hmm. on my journey as a as a man and as a husband and as a father. And I kind of probably am a different pair now at 50 than I was at 25 or 26, where I was gung-ho, let's go Marinovich on them all, to... Uh, <laughs> think you were easy for your dad as a football coach to raise? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I was with him all the time. I was there. I wanted it. I couldn't get enough. And they, even when I was, I remember to this day, man, uh, I couldn't have been more than four or five, but I remember they, my dad and my brother were sitting in my mom and dad's bedroom at a little bungalow in to me and saying they were going to um, uh, some meeting, but you had to be seven or six to, to get into it. You couldn't be under six. And I knew they were going to uh, <laughs> have a summer workout with his football team. And for whatever reason, he didn't want to take take me. And I, and I knew they were lying to me. And I cried and cried and cried and cried when I came home and and I remember him coming home and mom say he has not stopped crying. And I remember him saying, and he grabbed me by my head in a loving way and said, uh, I'll never do that again. And so ever since uh, I was, I've was, i been going. I mean, Bruce, I don't know. I think I wrote, maybe I wrote in my book, I don't know if I wrote this story, but in eighth grade at Canton Layman Junior High School, we had a game canceled because of thunderstorms, and I thought the thunderstorm was going to clear up, and I wouldn't leave the locker room. And I was crying like a baby. And the eighth grade coach, Coach Jim Lowe, came out and said, "What the hell's the matter with you?" Oh, I said, "Okay, fine. The game's canceled. When do we make it up?" He goes, "It's the last game of the year. We're not making it up." And I wouldn't leave. Then he actually called my dad and told him to come get me. That was an unhealthy obsession with the game. It really was at a young age. Well, it's certainly turned out, you know, for most kids who love it, it doesn't pay off that way. It usually has a an unhappy ending or, you know, I don't know if an unhappy ending, but it just kind of right. becomes something else. So, uh, well, I think that obsession allowed me to take advantage of whatever, whatever athletic ability I had, which allowed me to 
Yeah, because I remember the story. So, your rookie year, your first game, you stunk in the first game, right? Preseason game. Yeah, yeah, preseason game. Um, After you have that bad game and they kind of challenge you, is there ever any doubt in your head, oh, this is a different animal for me or anything like that? or? excited about seeing in college football in 2017? Uh, the atmosphere, the, um, the being on campus and, you know, just embracing college football for what it is and celebrating that. I do believe that uh, I'll be in the Big Ten mainly this year. And so in the Big Ten right now is on an upswing and the conference is darn good and so I'm looking forward to that and the passion for football in the Big Ten I mean you know this is you know in the SEC and the Big Ten I, I would venture to say is probably the mo- two most passionate fan bases would you agree with that yeah you know, you yeah remember? I mean just when you show up at one of those games it just it just <laughs> feels different it smells different it just a yeah. <laughs> You know, there's a different energy to it. It's not to say that they yeah. don't have passion in, in Norman, Oklahoma, because they do, and they, you know, there's yeah. there's pockets of it. But just, um, you know, you kind of remember, especially if you're an outsider. You grew up in, you know, where you grew up. I mean, for me, you know, yeah. I remember the first time I went to an Ohio State game. I remember the first time I went to an LSU game. There's just, it just yeah. feels different. It's different. It, 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 yeah, it's just, it's different than going to a Stanford game, which. I love the stadium. I love the way Stanford plays. But it's a different animal when I see folks rolling in there in the second quarter. All right, the game got started. Let's go. Go Cards. Yeah, because it's all that matters to them. I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's all that, but it just, it's something where people don't miss games because they know, you know, like you were saying about the, how short the season is for them. The season's basically six yeah. games. Or maybe they go on the road to some of them, but, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just all they're all, all consuming for them. They live it pretty much during the week and then game right. comes and, you know, that's honestly, that's why I don't mind that the games are long. Yeah. So here's how I describe it. Um, 
I get asked this a lot, that question, somewhat, and it, it's, how do you explain the, the, the fanaticism of the Michigan fan or the State fan or Notre Dame fan? I'm, and I said, look, we, people with those schools love football and passion, passionate for, about it. And they make no apologies for it. They embrace it. Yeah. I'm a guy that, you know, wears the foam finger and paints my face and puts a jersey on and for three and a half hours on a Saturday afternoon, I embrace the great game of college football in my school and my university and I will not apologize for it. And that's the difference in my opinion. Mm. Um, well, Chris, I appreciate you doing this and, and uh, stepping in. I'm excited to, uh, to have you back in college football. For uh, I know you referenced it a little bit earlier, and I would encourage people uh, to, if you haven't read Chris's book, it is titled That's Why I'm Here, or the Chris and Stephanie Spielman story. It came out probably, what, three years ago? Yeah, three or four years ago. It's been been longer than that. It's gone fast. So. Yeah, it's much more than a football story, though, so I would... Uh, yeah. I would encourage people to look at it, and um, they follow you on Twitter at, it's at Chris underscore Spielman. All right, well, I know people are going to be excited to have you back, because, um, I mean, I think, you're, I think you're awesome when you're doing games, just because you're just a football guy and everything. Um, the more information, the better. The more intel, the better. And, and I think you make people smarter when that happens. So, uh, look forward to seeing you soon.